Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. At the end of each week, I am joined by a guest to help us distill and further examine what we heard in trial that previous week. Again this week, my guest is Abby Smith, who serves as Professor of Law and Director of the Criminal Defense and Prisoner Advocacy Clinic at Georgetown University. Together we'll discuss our coverage of the final witness testimonies in the trial, as well as the beginning of Prosecutor Thomas Binger's closing argument. My conversation with Abby Smith is coming up right after the break. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And now, my conversation with Georgetown law professor and criminal defense attorney, Abby Smith. Abby Smith, thank you again for joining us. My pleasure. Nice to talk with you, Carrie. So one of the first things I wanted to talk about today was Judge Schrader's introduction of Dr. Black's testimony on Veterans Day by saluting all the veterans in the room. And it seems Dr. Black was the only veteran in the courtroom that day. What did you make of all that? Oh, my God. I was gobsmacked. I've never seen something so wildly inappropriate by a judge. It was just an occasion to celebrate a defense expert as being a veteran. I mean, if that's not throwing the weight of the court behind a particular witness, I don't know what is. I don't even know why he needed to say anything about Veterans Day. That was among the most unusual things I've ever seen a judge do in the course of a trial, certainly in the course of a murder trial. As all of this was happening, I took each of these instances as evidence of a bias on Schrader's part. But now that I've been able to sort of deconstruct the trial in great detail, I don't feel that way anymore. I do think that the way that that worked out was inappropriate. I didn't get the sense that it was intentional. I think he was literally marking Veterans Day. Black happened to be the first witness that day. But his sort of ham-fisted approach to being a judge seemed to play into a media narrative that he was biased towards Rittenhouse. A lot of his rulings were very fair on balance to both sides. In fact, I was concerned that Black was being used as a use of force expert, but at the end of the day, he didn't allow any of that testimony. And the only testimony that Schrader allowed of Black's was on the video stuff. And so it's interesting to dive into a case and to see how the media narrative differed from the actual context in which these utterances and situations evolved. 
Well, that's an interesting observation about Schrader's intent when he decided to celebrate Veterans Day. You know, yes, if it was accidental, then that's just unfortunate for the prosecution. But he is ham-fisted is the perfect word. It felt to me throughout the trial that he was at least occasionally mugging for the camera. Now, I don't know. I've never appeared before him as a lawyer. I don't know how he is ordinarily. Maybe he's often kind of long-winded and folksy and self-referential. But I thought the Veterans Day thing felt like mugging for the camera. And I don't know. I mean, if I was really going to be cynical, I would say he probably figured out that this guy who's got a you know lengthy law enforcement background was probably also a veteran because veterans are disproportionately represented in most police departments. But I, all right, maybe it just was an accident. But I do think the judge was biased throughout the trial. I mean, I've remarked that sometimes his rulings were absolutely right. And to the extent they seemed to benefit the defense, frankly, in my view, most rulings should. That's should benefit the defense. That's the way our adversarial system is constructed. The defendant gets the benefit of the doubt. Judges should err on the side of allowing the defendant to put on his case. But some of the particular specific evidentiary rulings and the way he came down on Binger suggested far more animus toward the prosecution than I think a truly even-handed judge would have shown. I guess this is a degree of differences conversation. I do think he may well have been slightly biased, but I think that his reaction to Binger was as much on Binger as it was on the judge. And the reason is that there were ways for Binger to do the things he did without running afoul of the rules of procedure and without getting under the judge's skin. I want to go back again to what is the most critical piece of evidence that was excluded by the judge, which is Rittenhouse's utterance about the looters of the CVS a few weeks before the shootings in Kenosha. Binger should have anticipated that the judge would rule that inadmissible initially, and he should have strategized for how to get that in. Yes, and he should have carved out a strategy for eliciting just enough testimony from Rittenhouse to be able to use that prior statement as impeachment. That's all he needed to say to the judge. I understand that this is not admissible as substantive evidence, but if in the course of Mr. Rittenhouse's testimony, it becomes relevant and proper to introduce it for another purpose, I'm not conceding that. I think he would have found some success in doing that, just in the way that the defense sort of carved out the opening for introduction of Joseph Rosenbaum's history. And when Binger opened the door, they were able to walk through it. I agree. And and I think that a lot of the judge's reactions were based on Binger's sort of grandstanding and doing things that he knew he didn't have permission to to do. Yeah, I think, you know, the judge began to regard Binger as just a kind of smarmy, too clever by half. I mean, literally, as we said in our last conversation, the judge said, I don't believe you to a prosecutor. I do not believe you are being candid with this court. That's remarkable. And that's on Binger because, because you're right. You know, a good lawyer knows how to play the judge. And this judge did not want to be taken by surprise. Anytime there was a surprise, he got very uneasy. And I want to use sort of as an example of how to do it the way that James Krause did it with the video. 
So the judge initially ruled that the video enlargement was inadmissible, that they couldn't show it to the jury, or that at least they had to show further cause why the manipulation wasn't creating pixels, pickles and logarithms or whatever it was. But Krauss ultimately got his way because he did it patiently and he did it by the book. He went out in front before he brought the video analyst back on the witness stand and argued it through. As halting and ineffective at times as Krauss was as a litigant, at least he understood how to get the judge to a decision that he wanted and needed. And Binger never seemed to figure that out. Yeah, I agree. And again, that was evident in his getting bogged down in questioning Dr. Black about enhancements and manipulations as if it was sort of a tit for tat for the defenses harping on, you know, enlarging an iPad screen. And then we had the questioning of Drew Hernandez, where he just spent an inordinate amount of time on Hernandez's bias in his testimony, which just was kind of a waste of time. And, you know, you spend that kind of time on that kind of witness, you dignify the witness. You make it seem to the jury that this was important testimony. It wasn't. I think Binger should have very quickly gotten in and gotten out and excused the witness. Agreed. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In the second part of our conversation, Abby offers some final thoughts on the witness testimonies, and then we move on to discuss Prosecutor Thomas Binger's closing. Any other thoughts about the last set of witnesses, or should we move on to Binger's closing? Well, one more thought. You know, I thought Black was a very good witness. I mean, he clearly was a a polished, practiced witness in that he expressed himself well, he expressed himself in a way the jury could understand, and He provided very good corroboration for Rittenhouse's testimony in so plainly emphasizing how quick everything was. That was his purpose, is how quick it was. And, you know, he did it in this kind of teacherly fashion. Now, it's unusual for there to be any witnesses after a defendant in the defense case. Conventional wisdom, and it's, you know, based on good sound reasoning, is that you put your client on absolutely last so that you know what the case is, you know what all the evidence is, and you make a determination about whether he should testify. I thought this worked out, though, because it was a way to sort of enhance the stuff that Rittenhouse had testified to about how fast everything seemed to him. Yeah, it was interesting because when Dr. Black testified during a preliminary hearing, he spoke about use of force and about reaction to the perception of a lethal threat. He gave no testimony on any of those fronts. The judge didn't allow it. We didn't have the ruling on the record for that, but clearly he was limited in what he could talk about. But 
the defense found a way to use his video expertise to testify about how quickly things happened. Yes. You know, I think he was a good witness in that he didn't stray from what he understood he was supposed to testify to. And I think the defense used him in a really focused way. And it said, you know, just so that people listening understand, the reason that Dr. Black wasn't allowed to testify about reasonable belief in imminent danger to justify shooting in self-defense is because that's a jury question. And the judge was right to limit that, that he couldn't. And it's not just because his expertise was in police shoots, but because that invades the province of the jury to make a determination, which is essentially a factual determination based, of course, on a kind of legal rubric. But, you know, it was the ultimate question in the case. Was this justifiable homicide or was this a criminal offense? Let's move on to Binger's closing. I want to posit something for you, and I'd love to hear your response. I thought the beginning of Binger's closing was one of his finest moments in the trial and yet revealed very clearly the great weakness of his lawyering in this case. And what I mean by that is he showed me with the beginning of his opening that he knew how to argue the case and that he actually used the trial as his discovery process, that he went into all these nooks and crannies with open-ended questions, and there was so much of it that was a waste and actually did his case a disservice. And when he finally zeroed in on the argument, at least during this first portion that we've covered so far, he showed me that like he, at the end of the day, understood the case he wanted to argue, but he had to go through all these terrible tangents and cul-de-sacs before he got there. Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization and an interesting one, because there were times during the trial when it felt more like a preliminary hearing, which is the classic discovery-oriented proceeding, you know, where you're finding out absolutely everything about the case and you don't really care whether the testimony is for you or against you. You're preparing yourself for trial. That should never happen at trial, ever. And, you know, it's funny because he uses a lot of kind of lawyerly jargon, too much in my opinion, in the closing. The use, for example, of the term red herring, which I don't think most people even know what that means. But frankly, he was kind of the source of a lot of red herrings. He went down any number of rabbit holes that cluttered up his case, that cluttered up any kind of coherent prosecution theory. I think Binger knows how to argue. I mean, I said in the beginning, I was a bit of an apologist for him, that he's a smart guy and he's an able lawyer. And I think that's what we saw in the closing. However, there were missed opportunities. One, I've already mentioned, a kind of too lawyerly by half approach in his language, in the way he talks about self-defense and the burden of proof, too lawyerly. I think you need to use language. This is not an opening statement, so it's not a narrative, but you still need to use persuasive narrative language. I think it was a missed opportunity to not begin this case by saying this guy Kyle Rittenhouse, who sits here right now, I mean, there should be some drama in the beginning. He shot and killed two unarmed men. This is not in dispute. Two unarmed men who I would argue posed him no serious danger whatsoever. But he was armed and ready. And there's a reason that Rittenhouse brought that kind of weapon to a protest. 
that he didn't start with killing the two unarmed people. And then you can say Anne nearly took out a third person. You don't have to mention whether he was armed or not. And could have killed many more in view of the kind of weapon he was using. That's the heart of the case for the prosecution. He was also charged on the fact that Richard McGinnis was in the line of fire. So right. the fourth person there. Exactly. And there could have been more than Richie McGinnis, frankly, because you're spraying guns. You're spraying bullets. Look, you know, I have to say this, Carrie, probably don't know this about me, but I grew up in the town right next to Highland Park, Illinois. And as I was listening to these portions of the Rittenhouse trial, it was hard for me to not think about another young white guy shooter in a suburb of Chicago in the affluent North Shore, a place I know really well. And, you know, you want to say, what the fuck? What gets into the brains of these young guys that they should be carrying this kind of weaponry around? And that's another missed opportunity. You know, not Binger's failure to mention Highland Park, which hadn't happened yet, but more focus in the beginning about this kid had no right. Everybody knew that the town of Kenosha had said to people off the streets, we want as many people off the streets as possible. And even though the curfew charge wasn't in, there was testimony about curfew and the judge was right in, in response to one of the objections. It comes in and it's for the jury to waive. And he sort of dropped that narrative about this too young a guy to own a gun is armed to the nines and strapped. So I mean, so far in the closing, he hasn't talked enough about how he was strapped. That gun was strapped to his body on purpose. In sync with that, the fact that the minor possession of a deadly weapon was thrown out, he could have used that to his advantage as well. Kyle Rittenhouse knew that that gun was not supposed to be purchased for him. He knew that Dominic Black could get in trouble and is in fact being prosecuted for buying that gun for him. So the fact that that charge didn't stick and you know was appropriately, it seems, thrown out on a technicality didn't mean that Binger couldn't use the fact against him. Exactly. And he should have. I mean, that's the other thing that feels like a missed opportunity. You know, look, I believe that prosecutors have to be fair. They've got an ethical responsibility to seek justice. And even in an adversarial setting, they have to be careful. But he doesn't have to pull his punches in a closing argument. He should have characterized Kyle Rittenhouse as a flat out liar on every front. He knew he shouldn't have that gun. He knew he shouldn't have been possessing it. He knew he was out there in the streets of Kenosha when people were told to stay home. He's a teenage lifeguard and he's out there lying about his expertise. He needed to take him down like that. And I don't know why he didn't. And he could have said to the jury to diffuse. You can think yourself, you know, seemed like a perfectly nice guy on the stand. And he shed some tears. And, you know, things were moving quickly for him. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We hold people responsible every single day for split decisions. We hold people responsible who drink too much and end up getting behind the wheel of a car. And we hold people responsible who are using a semi-automatic weapon that that person, especially Kyle Rittner, he was familiar with that gun. He knew how quickly bullets could be discharged. It needed to be more of an attack and it needed to say, don't feel sorry for him. He killed two people. He nearly killed a third or a fourth or more. Don't feel sorry for him. Yeah. Instead, Binger always went for the tactic that was too clever for its own good. You know, a picture of Patrick Swayze fist fighting from Roadhouse. 
That's absolutely silly. Even the way he talked about the adage is you don't bring a gun to a knife fight. So he tried to use that about a barroom brawl. And then he says to the jury, I'm sure you, you know, you're all familiar, but maybe some of you even been in those just felt so silly. And also the way that he went through, quote, the only way this is justified. And then he went through essentially the defense argument with what I thought was just a bit too much credence to that argument. Like, let the defense make the argument. He didn't do anything to diffuse the argument. And in fact, I felt like he enhanced the argument by laying it out there so clearly. Well, and even his choice of words, he referred to the defense theory as cockamamie. I mean, that's way too gentle and not effective. I mean, he has to say that their theory is A, a theory, and and B, it falls way short for the following reasons. And then tell the jury, I know you're too smart to fall for that. And then maybe even use the jury instruction. The question is not whether Rittenhouse had an honest, subjective belief. It has to be reasonable. It has to be that a reasonable person and no reasonable person would have ever shot their weapon under these circumstances. He could have walked away. Yeah. And just to return to the reason that I felt that his closing revealed a deeper failure on his part is that he made some very strong arguments in taking us through the timeline and the footage for what Kyle Rittenhouse did and how he was the instigator of the situation that led to Rosenbaum's death. He also emphasized the fact that he was prosecuting Joshua Zeminski for arson. He could have said if Joseph Rosenbaum had lived, he probably would have prosecuted him for arson as well. That doesn't mean he deserved to die. Right. And what you just said, Carrie, is what needed to be said much more precisely. I mean, he did this thing about, you know, people's class backgrounds. You know, we don't value one kind of human life over another. He should have much more directly said, you know, you can find that Joseph Rosenbaum was a troubled person, didn't deserve to die. He was absolutely unarmed. He carried a clear bag and there's no evidence whatsoever aside from this defendant's testimony, this defendant who is an admitted liar about almost everything that mattered that night, that there was a supposed threat by Rosenbaum. Don't believe it. Yep. He just let in too much clutter into the case, Binger did. I agree with that. You know, I do. And it's disappointing because he's smart. He made a good argument. But he needs to be more straightforward in telling the jury that there's a lot of irrelevant stuff, that the defense is throwing everything they can think of at this jury. But he knows the jury is smart enough to see through it. And he knows that this jury can't possibly believe that under these circumstances, it was okay. Forget even using the word justified, that it's okay and that it somehow is, you know, fine. And that Kyle Rittenhouse is some kind of hero which is what the defense is basically saying, you know, that he came there as a Boy Scout to help prevent looting and property destruction, when in fact he came there and lit a smoldering fire, one that was under control by the police. He inserted himself into that. And I do like some of his word choice. I mean, he basically called Rittenhouse a provocateur, not just an instigator, but a provocateur. You know, I have to confess I was feeling Binger's pain during the closing there were too many missed opportunities. And you could almost hear his disappointment, maybe in himself. I, I don't know. 
Yeah, all I felt was disappointment in him and in what I saw as the laziness with which he tried this case. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's really weird. It's an occupational hazard. You know, I think it happens sometimes with prosecutors. Their job is made easier because they tend to have more evidence, better prepared, more experienced witnesses. And I don't know, did he think this was a slam dunk? And so he decided he didn't have to anticipate the stuff the defense threw at him. I I don't know. The case should have resulted in at least a couple of convictions. Well, Abby, just a few more episodes left before we wrap this up. I really appreciate your insights, and I look forward to our concluding our coverage of Binger's closing, getting on to the defense closing, and then the deliberations and the verdict. I do too. Thanks. That brings to a close this weekly recap of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us next week as we continue our look at the closing arguments in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at CrimeStory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our guest on this episode was professor of law at Georgetown University, Abby Smith. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. It was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.